Welcome to Remarkable Careers Podcast. In this episode, we will learn how a political scientist from Scuba University became a data scientist at Google. My friend and colleague, Azamat, shares how being curious brought him to Japan, helped him to succeed at Rakuten, and become an expert in data science at Google. Please enjoy. Hello, Azamat. And welcome to the Remarkable Careers Podcast. It's really great pleasure to have you here. How are you today? Oh, good. Thank you. I have a nice weather in Tokyo, so I'm super excited for this weekend. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a long weekend in Tokyo. I'm also very excited to have you here and learn more about your background. To better get to know you, I will ask you several icebreaking questions where you will have to pick one between two. Please answer them based on what your preference is. Ready? Yep. Here we go. Facebook or Instagram? Either. <laughs> Texting or calling? Texting at the moment. Speaking or listening? Definitely listening. Teleportation or flying? Uh, I wish I had a teleportation 100% for it. Great. AI or humans? Combination of both. What if you had to pick one? Still humans, I guess. Tradition or trend? Yeah, it's hard to pick, but I'd love to say both because they can't live without each other. So, But if you ask me one, then tradition, I guess. Okay, this is a difficult one. I'll take both. Uh, research or experiment? These are like dichotomy questions you're asking, but I think they can't live with each other. So I would say both. <laughs> sea or mountains? Mm. I grew up in a mountainous place. I would prefer now living close by sea. Hiragana or katakana? Definitely hiragana. Fiction or true? For inspiration, fiction. For life, true. Great answer. Podcast or YouTube? This is the most difficult question. I would go for YouTube because it contains all podcasts, I would say. Great. Gold or Bitcoin? Tricky question. Gold. Money or fame? For resources, yes. I think in terms of capital, money would be on the preference side. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, these were supposed to be icebreaking, not deep diving questions, but I appreciate you putting a deep thought at some of these questions. Sure. So next, I would like to move to learn more about your background, roots, upbringing, being a friend and knowing some of your background. You know, I always admired how you have transformed yourself from studying political economy at Scuba University in Japan to becoming an AI engineer or a data scientist at Google. Before we learn about your career journey, do you mind telling us more about your early school days back in Kyrgyzstan, your home country? Sure, yes. So I spent about seven years in the village school. And those were like one of the happiest moments, I would say, despite the fact that, you know, we didn't have that much of an, uh, you know, focus on the academics or like, you know, the sciences or anything, you know, the subjects that schools usually teach. I say happiest moments because, you know, the early memories of actually being schooled were always fun. (laughs) You know, playing with kids and, you know, the village is small enough that, you know, everybody. So you're like, you feel always safe. 
then you know your teachers, their families, so you're not alienated you know, from your teachers like in most of the schools you do. So you're like a kind of a big family where some of your family members are teaching you. So it was great fun, you know, learning the alphabet, the initial, you know, the math and other subjects were extremely kind of, I wouldn't say like top-down teaching, but more of a curiosity-driven learning early on. So I was quite competitive in terms of, you know, the school performance. I kind of cared in the beginning for grades. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) But apart from that, I think I was just a normal kid, you know, enjoying school days and playing out with my friends in the neighborhood. So, yeah. Great. For listeners who are not familiar about Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan is former Soviet Republic. It's a small country which is located in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. And could you let us know what is the population of Kyrgyzstan and how would you best describe your country? Sure, yeah. I don't know the exact stats, but I think currently we're at around 6 million people, Kyrgyz people living in Kyrgyzstan and I think outside as well. So if I describe maybe with three words, <laughs> yeah. I would say it's mountains. Like, you know, over 80% of the country is mountainous. So basically, we live in the valleys. Then relaxed people, you know, who doesn't really care about time, punctuality, <laughs> enjoy their <laughs> life. And nice, hospitable people. Yeah, and then feeling of... How do I say, like, you know, because as you mentioned, like, we're part of Soviet Union, currently we're at the stage of building who we are. So there's lots of changes that are happening and people are trying to figure out, like, our identity. So there is this thing called Kyrgyz identity. And, like, you know, if you talk to common people, they would, you know, try to explain who we are in a nice way. I mean, nice mm-hmm. way, genuinely nice way, who we are, like, you know, looking at history, etc. So our country is very young i think you know similar to other soviet countries so i think it's it's been around like 30 something years at the moment 31 years right so pretty much it's younger than me but people have hopes people are building the nation at the moment so it's quite exciting times that's so interesting how you said the country is younger than me that's yeah. really interesting <laughs> to hear especially for folks who live in japan japan being such a old country with very long history. Yeah. Going back to your childhood, I wonder who did you want to become when you were young and why? Yeah, so when I was growing up, again, it all comes back to, I think, you know, the nation building and you know, how we try to create who we are, etc. So we had our own heroes when I was growing up. And the hero that I was quite inspired by was our first astronaut. His name was Salijan Sharipov. And, you know, he was the first one to fly to the International Space Station and do some research, and first astronaut. So his face was pretty much on all of our, you know, the (laughs) notebooks, like the school notebooks. Right. Yeah, most of my, I think, you know, curious-minded friends were inspired by him, and most of us wanted to become an astronaut. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my first kind of dream, like, you know, or or aspiration (laughs) for my future. Like, oh, I I imagine myself, you know, being astronaut and, you know, flying to uh, ISS and doing some research and, you know, the weightless environment, right? The zero gravity environment. That was quite exciting. (laughs) 
Interesting. You never told me about that. I wonder if you still think of that dream and if that thought, that moment you had in the past somehow still keeps impacting on what you currently do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was quite inspiring at the time. And I think that inspiration still kind of carries to these days. And, you know, but unfortunately, like when I was in high school and, you know, close to university, <laughs> I understood that I'm, you know, to, you know, based on Soviet standards at that moment, right? I'm yeah. not qualified for that because I'm shorter. Uh -huh. I don't speak Russian and I'm not good at sciences, etc. So I kind of gave up on that. But, you know, these days, as you know, lots of billionaires <laughs> are competing to make it affordable. So who knows, maybe sometime in the future it became, it could become possible that for uh, normal human beings like me, it could become possible to fly and to experience this wonder of space. So you are telling me that you would definitely love to have a chance to travel to space. Why not? Absolutely. Great. Great. Well, maybe we can have another episode once that happens. <laughs> okay. So back in those days when you were in Kyrgyzstan, have you ever thought that you would be coming to Japan, studying here and possibly working here? I was fortunate enough that my high school actually provided a Japanese language as a fourth language for us to learn. Interesting. <laughs> in my school. So I spent about three years, I would say, learning the super basics of the language, culture. So I think that kind of set a seed for me to think about Japan as a potential alternative to continue my education. But because there are so few people visit from my country, Japan, so I didn't really see any pathways, right? Like how to study in Japan, what kind of countries that apart from the technology and robotics that we know Japan for, or anime, right. mm -hmm. I didn't really have any clear vision for, you know, to continue my education in Japan. So yeah, I would say those were like kind of early, you know, it started in high school, the early seeds. And then yeah, ultimately, it led me to uh, Japan. Yeah. So after you graduated from the university in Kyrgyzstan, you applied for the scholarship program from the Japanese Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports and Science, or Monbu Kagakusho mm -hmm. in Japanese. For people who do not know Monbu Kagakusho or MAXED scholarship in English, it's a very competitive study program through which foreign students are selected to study at top Japanese universities. Mm -hmm. So you were selected to come to Japan and you arrived at Tsukuba University. Mm -hmm. Could you let us know like, what was the research topic you were working on and how did this experience influence your decision on career? Absolutely, yes. So the university, the area of my study was, you know, political economy, public policy related subjects. I wanted to understand how internet impacted Japan's traditional companies like Sogo Shosha, like general trading companies. Right. Right. Uh -huh. So this topic was quite interesting, specifically for the reason that these companies, general trading companies, were or maybe still are the main engines of Japanese economy for the past 50 or even 100 years. Right. Yeah. They have a lot of influence on the economy, trading in general. 
Yeah. And I was quite inspired by the fact that, you know, the oldest companies, I think, in the world are, most of them are in, in Japan, as you know. Yeah, yes. And then some of them are these general trading companies like, you know, Mitsui or Mitsubishi, Marubeni, right, which dates back to early Meiji Jidai, right, which is like <laughs> 1800s. It's amazing. Yes. And then I was looking at, like, throughout the history, right, these companies succeeded despite, like, industrialization and despite, you know, automation on the you know new technology introduced to society they are still like you know thriving right and also provide you know boosting the economy and then i was looking into internet which became quite widespread starting early 1990s right and i was looking into the problem of how these general trading companies dealt with internet how they integrated into their own business right and then how they are trying to thrive in this internet economy so that was the topic of my research and yeah, and I successfully, you know, completed and graduated with this topic. <laughs> Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing. This is also something I never heard of. This topic is really interesting on how internet. I'm very curious to learn what were the outcomes. But you did mention that you were enrolled to learn and study political economy, but you had a big interest in IT. Since when were your interest or passion for IT industry? I think it started when I was around 10, 11. Just goes back to <laughs> early in my life. Okay. By that time, I didn't have computers. I only had my first computer around when I was 15 or 16, towards the end of my high school. But before that, yeah, I was quite de- like kind of not excited, but inspired what computers are capable of early on. So I just had some textbooks on how computers work, what is Windows, what is basic, <laughs> Microsoft-sponsored publishing textbooks. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I was just like kind of preparing myself. Whenever I have a chance to sit in front of a computer, then I should be able to work. <laughs> so I was studying via the textbook. So it starts from there, but because of some, you know, circumstances, I had to stick to social sciences in my bachelor's and master's degree, and then gradually switch back to IT. So yeah, I think I did the transition when I joined, when I started actually working. <laughs> so it took some, you know, quite a while to get back to what I actually wanted to do. Just like anything in life, you have to give something before you take. I think this example where you had to go for study social economy, political economy, is an example where to gain something you have to give. Would you agree that you had to give several years and learn something which wasn't 100% what you wanted to pursue for the sake of later on in career becoming an IT engineer? Yeah, absolutely. I don't feel like these were lost years, definitely. You know, schooling is not only about like gaining skills, right? You broaden your horizon of your perspective, your knowledge, your worldview. So in that sense, I think, you know, the sociology, social sciences, philosophy, history, and, you know, politics and economy that I spent years studying kind of, I think, helped me to become more aware of how the world works generally, right? On a social structure level, not on technical, from the technical perspective, but on the, you know, social construct. And that also helps you to actually eventually, you know, steer your career because when you have better understanding of how society works, 
and you also understand the how historically, you know, as a part of our curriculum, you also study how technology impacts the society, right? Right. Right. So those kind of, you know, perspectives from the schooling at the university kind of gives you a bit of, I guess, better perspective, better readiness for what kind of career you want in life, right? So you could go completely on the academy, academia, what is it called? Academia, like become professor, or you could join the industry to become like an expert in a certain field, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I mean, it could be not super efficient to go through these years of schooling on the social mm-hmm. sciences and then become a kind of, you know, technical expert in a field. But definitely those were like fruitful years, I would say. Yeah. Great. So it's not always a straight line from A to B. Absolutely. Get where you want to. Life is fuzzy. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. I know that before you started your work at Google, you used to work for Rakuten. Could you let me know how did your social studies, um, the things that you just described, understanding societies, understanding the philosophy, some of these experiences helped you to pick this career? Why did you decide to join Rakuten? So Rakuten was more on a practical side. Uh, So I had a chance to go for Tokyo as a PhD student or to join the industry. Okay. So I picked the second mainly because I wanted to understand how generally these companies work. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I studied, you know, historically the how these big Japanese companies dealt with nascent new technology that appeared suddenly in 1990s as one of the, you know, business opportunities across the globe. Okay. Right? Yeah. While doing that, I learned a lot about the Japanese IT industry, not only about these trading companies historically, but generally IT industry. And that kind of, you know, has driven my curiosity as well. Like, oh, at that time, Rakuten was one of the innovative companies or one of the unicorns in Japan, right? And I was like, wow, if I could work here, then I would understand, not from the, you know, the theoretical perspective that I was doing at school, but from inside how these companies operate. So I did my best. I tried my best to actually get into this company and then see how generally IT companies work without putting myself into a strict constraints that I want to do this thing, I want to do that thing. I was like open to any kind of, you know, opportunity within the company to explore how things work. I was more interested, I guess, like how things work, (laughs) just to verify what kind of, you know, assumptions I had about how companies operate theoretically based on my, some MBA courses and my research. I see. So... You spend a number of years studying theories, learning how the world works, how society operates, and researching on how IT, internet, impacted traditional companies in Japan. And I think in early 2000s, that's when you came to Japan, Rakuten was booming. This was one of the most innovative companies in Japan. So I wonder, after you joined and worked there, how did you feel? What was it like? to actually start working, practicing, and not only, you know, learning through books, through your research. How was it in reality? I had super high expectations as a young graduate, right? It's good to have super high expectations and you're like ambitious. (laughs) Sure. You want to conquer the world, you want to change the world. But when you face a big wall, you know, you have to rethink. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> which we're hoping for. But generally, I think it was great experience, you know, but some of the things that I found were 
some things that I initially I found very trivial, like I found like meaningless, like why we're doing some certain things like repetitively, right? Why things can't be automated because like textbook says like you can do this automation, that automation. Then textbook says like, oh, you can organize the teams this way, then this way to be more efficient. But you know, as every big organization, you always have some certain politics, certain, you know, ways of behaving, ways of communicating, ways of dealing with projects, etc. So initially I was a bit surprised that how th- certain things are inefficient. You know, I was hoping that, oh, this is IT company. I'm not saying anything bad about Rakuten. I don't want to say, but it applies to across like all different companies, not only the Rakuten, I think, right? So there's like certain things work really well, but certain things could be optimized for more efficiency. But initially I found like, so yeah, surprising. But then later, of course, like while working, you know, when you get into details of the process, into details of your work, you understand that there are so many stakeholders of specific project that you can't actually quickly change or can't actually quickly get it done, right? You have to deal with people, you have to deal with processes, you have to deal with, you know, ever-changing technology. And you get like after a couple of years, kind of get a bit of wisdom how things could be done better or how things are done. Sorry, I'm being too abstract here. No worries. I understand. You had a lot of discoveries at how company operates. And at that time, I think Rakuten was quite young company and they were building up, they were expanding, and it's definitely not the most stable company to work for. Yeah, I mean, when I joined, it was a quite interesting period. It was 2000, I think, 12, where the company fully changed to English, you know, the internal communication. I think very big transition for a Japanese company, right? Or for any company to make like, I guess, you know, to shift the language from one to another and ask everyone to basically operate in that language, right? Right. So it was quite challenging, but it was interesting to see how, you know, the previous workforce versus the new joining workforce has like a bit of discrepancy in terms of understanding and expectations of each other. So in terms of culture, I think that was an interesting. So there you have a traditional Japanese culture plus the global tech innovative culture that the company is trying to infuse into this environment. And we were there to experience all of it. So I think that was quite unique experience and maybe once in a lifetime experience. (laughs) Initially, yeah, it was a bit challenging to be part of that uh, whole transition. But then when I look back, I think it was very, very unique experience. I mean, you can't really find in other companies, I guess, that not all the companies are transitioning, right? Like, so it was quite a unique experience. And of course, you know, really a good part of, of the company generally, like I think most of the Japanese companies is that it doesn't really matter what you studied at the university. It matters like if you can learn. So that's what Rakuten actually embraced. And then we had lots of trainings before we did actual work, which I'm super grateful for. I see. Right. So you spend a lot of time actually before you deliver your first project, learning stuff, you know, learning from your, you know, in Japan, as you know, the kohai and senpai relationship is quite strong, right? Which initially I didn't really like. But then again, as I grew older, I think it makes sense in many ways, you know, passing the knowledge and experience to the next generation provides a bit of cushion for Mm -hmm. completely new, inexperienced graduates. Right, to join this workforce in the industry. 
right? So we are lucky enough to have all of these in this very short period of time, like two years to experience. Especially in your first career, it's, I think, so important to have those trainings right in place. Yeah, absolutely. I really like how you look at things. I don't feel I'm speaking to a data scientist. I do feel that your social studies really impacted at the way you look at things. I think this is the first time I heard someone saying that senpai and kohai system in Japan is a way to transform knowledge and wisdom to the next generation. I'm going to use this next time whenever people ask me <laughs> about what I think about this whole ecosystem of senpai and kohai in Japan. So thank you for that. Yeah. After your career at Rakuten, you entered Google in 2015. And for many people, Google is a dream company to work for. Based on articles on the internet, it is 10 times harder to enter Google than Harvard. Why did you want to join Google? And let me ask you a very basic question. How did you make it happen? Yeah, sure. So to your first question about the reasons, first and the foremost reason, I think, is two things, I would say. First is people, and the second one is technology. What I mean by that? So by people, you know, I've been following Google's development for a while, you know, since early, since mid-2000s, I think, you know, when Google search became pretty much dominant and everyone started using it. I, I've been following the company's development and always inspired by some of the technologies that Google has introduced to the world. And then you know, those technologies are introduced by some kind of outstanding people, like or those people who are really, really experts in their field, right? Okay. So I was thinking like, you know, since I'm in the IT field now, I'm, you know, getting specialized in certain fields, but I don't want to get too specialized. So I would like to explore a bit more other opportunities. And Google was one of the, you know, plans mm -hmm. for me. So to join the company was, you know, some of the tal most talented people in the world. Yes. Some awesome, you know, technical solutions to help with the people's, you know, everyday life. You know, just look at how Google Maps or, you know, Google Search and other technologies are basically transformed the whole society. It was unimaginable. Like, if you ask this question, I don't know, anyone, any expert like 40 years ago, right? right. I wouldn't imagine how this internet technology, not only Google, of course, but there's like lots of other companies in terms of software, hardware transformed the whole society and now we're living in this completely you know i guess unimaginable kind of a future where like you have smart technologies everywhere mm -hmm. in your home in your smartphone computers and cars and you know it's going to transform anything so and google was i think and maybe is at the same time in the forefront of these new interesting technologies with honest people so I was planning uh, some time to, you know, apply and try my best to see if I can work with some of these people and help with the technology, you know, however I can. So, yeah, sorry, it was a bit long answer, but basically it comes down to two things. Yes, people, people and, and technology. Those were my two priorities that I thought, you know, could be good reasons to join Google. So people and technology yeah. attracted you. Yeah. I think with Rakuten, you mentioned that you didn't really plan your career back then. And yeah. I thought maybe Google also was something where, you know, someone contacted you or you applied online and you got in. Yeah, so I can tell about the process if that's interesting. I applied directly myself. I was looking like for some of the 
fields that are kind of similar to what I was doing so that I'll have better chance. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, since I was doing web development in Rakuten, I was looking for some positions around web technologies. Yeah, and I found good position in, in Tokyo. I applied and then the process was quite smooth, <laughs> unexpectedly. At several okay. interviews. Yeah, but prepared, you know, for these kind of things, I usually spend some time preparing, understanding. So I spend some time understanding the team, researching about the team, what they do, what are their needs, if I can actually provide what are the you know complementary skills that could be important for this team, right? So that those were the things I was looking into. And then I prepared a bit on, you know, some of the things I forgot around programming, technology, mobile technology at the time. So yeah, and then we had several interviews so back and forth. Yeah, and then I got an offer. Great story. So simple. You just applied, prepped, and got in. Can you let me know how long and how much did you have to prepare? So I don't really remember all the details, but I think I spent about two to three weeks dedicated okay. time to prepare. Okay. Research about the team, about technologies they use, about the industries that they operate in. And, you know, everywhere, pretty much like all the information I could get around the team, around the position, the details, right? And based on that, I kind of created a small syllabus for myself. And based on that, yeah, I think I spent about two, three weeks to prepare. And yeah, and then interviews were quite smooth. Yeah, one and after another, one after another. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it took about months and a half from the first contact till the offer. Understood. Thanks for sharing that. You know, just like with any company, joining is just a starting point. That's where everything starts happening. And thriving, continuously acquiring new knowledge is way more difficult in such a fast-paced environment yeah. where we have a constant change all the time, technology changing every day how do you keep yourself motivated and focused on your job that's a good question so motivation i don't have any problems with motivation actually <laughs> i have a problem demotivating myself <laughs> <laughs> can you elaborate a little bit more on that it takes time for me to digest what you just said <laughs> sure so basically I consider any career journey as a learning process. So if I stop learning something, then anything I'm doing gets boring, right? Okay. So yeah, career is pretty much learning for me. Learning, of course, not only selfishly learning, but along the way, you help others to learn, other, help others achieve their goals. It could be a business goal, uh, right? Increasing revenue or getting some impact in terms of business or helping your teammates or, you know, other people to learn something and achieve their goals, right? So learning is kind of a complex problem for me. Like you learn yourself, you impact others via sharing what you've learned, right? Okay. Right. And when that learning stops, that means you are doing the same thing over and over again. And Absolutely. human beings, actually, we are a beings of change, right? We always need some kind of change. Change could be anything. It could be positive, negative. It could be like moving, physical change, or many other things. But if you just, you know, get stuck somewhere, then that's, you know, life becomes 
colorless, gray. In prisons, the most scary thing for prisoners is a solitary confinement. I'm not sure if it's correctly called in English, like where you locked yourself, you know, where they lock you in a, in a room of gray color and, you know, in the cement room. And that's the most scary thing for the prisoners because you are left with yourself without anything, right? But mm-hmm. for me, when I look at this problem, it means the change stopped. Nothing is changing around you or in yourself. Right. right. And that's the scary thing, right? Because when you're outside, you talk to your inmates, you know, you walk to the yard or you do something, right? There's some kind mm-hmm. of changes happening. But of right. course, this is very extreme case. But in case of you know, coming back to the career, you know, when you're doing something that is not creative, that is not helping to learn, there is not, you know, inspiring you, then I feel like it's time to change. Like you need to do some kind of drastic change. But in my current position, you know, every day is pretty much hard learning. Like every day we're learning something because technology, everything is changing pretty much all the time. So whenever somebody asks me like, hey, what are you doing at Google? I, I say like, I'm learning. I'm learning, building stuff. I mean, helping my stakeholders by learning. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah, and then, you know, I said about creativity earlier. You know, the creativity can be anything, right? You know, it does need to be like creating some, I don't know, in a common sense, some like artwork or music or a movie, etc. No, at work, you can also be super creative, right? It could be like being creative in optimizing the process, for example. Let's say you've got some issues at work and you want to optimize to be more efficient, but there is no one single solution. Now you have to be creative to find that solution, right? Mm-hmm. So that's also a creative process, right? Or, you know, back in Rakuten, I also did some web design. And web design was really hard comparing to programming because you usually start with a canvas, blank canvas, right. and a concept, abstract concept you have to design. There is no single solution for that. Like, there's like a million ways you can organize shapes, you can organize colors, you can organize, mm-hmm. you know, text. There are a million ways, but you have to find a way to make it aesthetically clean, beautiful, and comprehensible you know, by other people. And basically, creating order from chaos is this creative design process. Right? And I see it, it is applicable everywhere. You know, in your normal daily work, you could be creative. Like how you can solve, how you can make these you know, certain inefficient things more efficient. There is no one single solution. There's a million different ways you can do it, but how you can find the most efficient one. So that's kind of, I think, creative process. And creative process can also be applied to programming, you know, solution building, collaboration with different teams. So if that creative process is thriving in in the work environment, then I feel like I'm kind of happy in (laughs) in my career. You know, I'm learning stuff and I'm being creative. So, yeah. That's the best what you can get. So to my question on how you keep yourself motivated, it's change, it's constant learning, it's being curious and being creative about everyday work you do. Absolutely. I really like the example you brought about the prisoner. It's a very extreme example but i think it's very deep because 
normally when there is a lot of change, we tend to think that it's not good for us. Mm-hmm. You know, people have stress, people need to think differently. And sometimes it's a painful experience and we do want to get into that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But that example does show that that comfort zone can be very scary. Mm-hmm. So to bring some color and mm-hmm. light into our podcast, mm-hmm. I would like to ask you if you had to give one answer on how you accomplished so much in your career, what would it be? Do you have a philosophy you strongly believe in which helped you to become of who you are? And what I mean is for a person coming from a small country, Kyrgyzstan, who never had a computer in the childhood, who were studying social sciences at Tsukuba University, what do you think helped you the most in your career so far? I think it's just the curiosity mostly, like trying to learn, like trying to learn things that I'm not aware of, you know. Growing up in a small village, right, when I visited the nearby a bit, it was a big city for me at that time, but if I think now, you know, my village is like 200 people and then the other close by city had maybe, you know, 2,000 people. That was super big. And my world horizon was completely expanded. And I thought like, wow, you know, it's super big. Like, you know, the world outside of my village is like completely, you know, it's too big for me. (laughs) Then when I went to, you know, our capital city, I was like completely amazed. Like, wow, so many buildings, cars and people, right? Then when I visited you know, Russia and US and some other countries, I have my like, worldview completely changed. And then every time, whenever I do some kind of like exploration, I'm like, I know nothing. <laughs> there are so many things, you know, you can <laughs> learn. Whatever I know is like tiny piece in this vastness of our world, you know? So therefore, like, if you ask me about if I accomplished anything in my career, I would say, you know, to be specific on a scale from one to hundred, I'm still at steps two, let's say, or three max. There are like 97 steps ahead, right? So uh, I haven't really accomplished anything. I mean, personally, that's what I consider myself. And there are so many things ahead that I would love to, if time allows, to explore <laughs> and have uh, some positive impact to, you know, surrounding to my surrounding people, my team, my friends and family, and my community. So, yeah. Great. You're a very humble person. Possibly that humbleness is the drive for you to be curious and constantly try new things. Hopefully. (laughs) I think naturally I would definitely love to ask this. What do you want to do in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. So I have some ideas at the moment that I'm working. So being part of a big organization, I think is great. You have a great team. You have the smartest people around you. But at the same time, I think, you know, you could ex- like explore some other alternatives as well, whereby you are still operating in the constraints of a big org. You know, the company provides, of course, everything you need as a great platform for development, both in terms of technology and in terms of like, you know, people and communication, etc. It's awesome, amazing. But at the same time, world is, is coming back to my own previous point. World is bigger than what we think. So I just keep that, you know, the image of myself moving from this tiny village to a nearby bigger village and from there to a city, from there to some other countries and then traveling around the world. 
it gets bigger, right? So basically, and every time when I'm in certain organization, I feel myself that, you know, of course, the organization, the company is, is, is big, it's global, it's amazing. But at the same time, the world outside has also tons of opportunities just to learn and to flourish, right? So therefore, I keep in mind that there are, you know, potentially could be other options as well. But, you know, at the same time, as I mentioned, there are so many things to learn within this company. <laughs> so, sorry, I couldn't give you the definitive answer, but, you know, in the yeah. future, I think I still be in the technology and in the business field mm-hmm. and gradually moving into more, maybe on the biotech or some of this nascent technology, biotechnology or, you know, space technology that would be also interesting to explore. Yeah. Great. I think the key word for you, curiosity, creativity, and also exploration is what I heard from you. You definitely don't want to stop at one station. You definitely want to be moving to explore more. And possibly that exploration will one day bring you to space. Who knows? (laughs) It could be interesting. Right. We are coming to almost the end of the podcast, and uh, I wanted to ask some questions from the perspective of listeners who are young generation in Japan who want to strive in their careers and also learn. With so much technology changing every day, what skills do you think younger generation need to acquire at school or in their lives to be relevant in the next 10 years? The only thing that comes to my mind is Again, sorry to repeat, but learning, but not only learning in just like mindlessly studying textbooks or books or, you know, or taking some courses just because you want to learn, but learning how to learn, I think is becoming more and more important. So just to summarize, I think learning how to learn is becoming extremely important. And if our time is okay, I can give you one maybe simple example for, or like simple guidance for your listeners. Yes, please. So there's a famous technique that some of the, you know, fast learners are applying to their, you know, daily life and, you know, work from one of the prominent physicists named Richard Feynman. So, you know, it provides basically four simple steps on how to effectively learn things, right? The first one is the identifying the subject, meaning like what exactly is needed at the moment in time for you to learn. And what is it? It's just simply you write down everything you know about the subject. Right? Okay. Everything you know. The next step is interesting. Now try to teach what you think you know to a child. Explain, right? If you can explain the subject or the thing that you're trying to learn to a child, then you don't have to learn it because you're already an expert. If you can explain, if, you, if the child gets you, right? right? But in most of the cases, like 100%, <laughs> you can't explain because it's, you know, based, you know, depending on what you're trying to explain, of course, you know, it could be hard for you to, in a simple terms, explain to a child. That gives you an opportunity to identify the gaps in your knowledge, you know? There are two things you know, in general about whenever you want to try to learn something. You have understanding that like you think that you know lots of things, but when you try to explain to someone, you understand that you know very little. So that's the gap you need to understand. I see. And finally, basically, you need to fill those gaps. Now you know exactly what it needs to learn, right? 
what you need to learn. And then you st- like try to fill those gaps. Iteratively, learn, teach to somebody. Learn, teach. Eventually, you'll become an expert in this subject. So I think this is quite simple but very powerful technique to one of the techniques to you know effectively do the learning how to learn. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I feel like through this podcast, speaking to you and having this deep conversation, it was inspiring, it was informative, and I definitely think I learned a lot of new things. So thank you so much, Adamat, for being with me for this one hour. I hope we can meet again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.